It was a little boy's first time to be in a service. He was curious about everything that was happening. He saw the guy come up to the front. And he, Daddy explained about the music and the prayer time, and, and then he saw the guy open up his book, and he says, what's he doing, Daddy? He's laying out the word of God that he's going to preach from. And then he put his water down. What's that, Daddy? Well, when he gets thirsty. And then the guy took off his watch, and he set it on the thing, and he says, what's that, Daddy? And he says, that means nothing. This may be my last time to do this because, no. I get to meet a lot of you guys this morning. Thank you guys for being so welcoming. Um, your church has a reputation. It stands on the word of God. There are, uh, sadly, a lot of churches today that don't do that. And uh, I want to tell you the privilege. I also found, you guys support the Stokers? Is that right? You, do. you know the Stokers, okay. I was going to say, man, thank you. That guy has touched everybody in Wycliffe. He is just amazing in what he does. Well, this morning, I would like to, uh, I would like to uh, share with you guys a passage of Scripture. And if, if, if this sounds like something you have experienced recently, I'd like you to stand. If something I read here sounds like something you've experienced, okay? But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, (laughs) without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, Lovers of pleasure rather than them lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Wayne, isn't mankind basically good? <laughs> Sounds familiar. Paul wrote this, his last letter that he ever wrote. He wrote it to Timothy to tell him this is what's coming. Stay standing for a second. There are people all over the planet right now that are praying for you. There's a widow up in Vancouver, Washington that we stayed with before we came here. She's praying for you. Grace Baptist in Dallas prayed for you guys today. Russ Hilsinger, the pastor there, is a friend of ours. Joanne Shetler in Waxhaw, North Carolina is praying for you guys. Auntie Margaret, 89 years old. Bible translator in Papua New Guinea contacted my wife yesterday and says, I'm praying for you over the weekend. David and Ruth Cummings, 180 years old. Okay, they're 90 each, but they claim they're 180. (laughs) Praying for you guys. So if they're praying, we should be praying too. So this is what I want you to do. Every head bowed and eyes closed. Not that that's why you have to come to heaven, but I want you to bow because that way God can speak to you. And I want you to pray this to yourself. Dear God, speak to me today. Put your message on my heart. Do your work in me so that you can do your work 
through me. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. My wife was born in Papua New Guinea. She lived there until she was 10. Then the family went to Nepal and then to India. And then she graduated from high school in North Carolina before she all went back to Australia, mate. And she's a fed income Australian. So there you go. All right. You guys know your church. I hope you know your website, gospel-centered, neighbor-loving, disciple-making, culture-shaping, because it's based on the word of God. So let's, let me introduce you to my family real quick. This is us. We're just your typical family. There's nothing special about us as missionaries. I put my cape on just like the pastor does every morning, and I fly off to work. Yeah, it's amazing what people think. You see, we're missionaries, but what people think when they hear missionaries, it's interesting. I went to my high school reunion, and when they find out I'm a missionary, it's amazing. Hey, Gary, that's neat. Hey, don't touch me. I don't want to get your disease. This is what our friends think we do. (laughs) This is what our moms think we do. This is what society thinks we do. (laughs) This is what our supporters think we do. This is what we think we do. But really, this is what we do. No different than you. We just have to use a user over a different language and maybe instead of a cup of coffee, it's a cup of tea or a cup of chai or something you don't want to ask what it is. I was with a Maasai in Kenya, and we're having breakfast. And I was with my Kamba friend, who was Munguti. And Munguti was as skinny as this bookmark. And anytime there was food, Munguti was eating. And this morning, I couldn't believe it. For this crazy gringo, they they had cornflakes. Woohoo! That was great. Oh yes. And I, I got the milk, and it was, it was dark in the room, was, and I couldn't see very clearly. And I grabbed the pitcher of milk, and I poured it on my cereal, and I looked a little strange, but I didn't think too much about it. I ate it. Everything always tastes a little bit strange. And <laughs> I noticed Munguti didn't eat breakfast. And afterwards, I said, Munguti, you didn't, you didn't have breakfast. He says, uh, no, no, I didn't. I said, how come? He said, did you notice the milk? I said, well, yeah. Did you, did you notice? Well, yeah, it was a little, it was pretty dark, but I mean, I didn't, yeah. He said, well, Gary, where are we? I said, we're among the Maasai. Oh, are you telling me? He said, yeah. Are, are you telling me, Munguti, are you te- Yeah. Blood. Cow's blood. I got my protein. Okay, so here we go. I want to talk to you about the amazing, incredible, remarkable, phenomenal, mind-blowing Word of God. I, I don't know if you feel that way about your Bible. Sometimes it gets to be so old and so commonplace to us. We stick it on a shelf. Now, it's not magic. If you put it under your pillow, it's not going to change you. But sometimes I'm amazed. You know, it becomes so commonplace. Marriages can be like that. You take your spouse for granted and you lose a spark and you take the word of God for granted. I want to relight fires this morning. 
I've got a blow torch. Here we go. Please carefully read these instructions real quick. We'll do the safety instructions because some of the places I've been, you got, you know how when you get on an airplane, what do they do? First thing you do is you do safety instructions. How many of you guys pay attention to that? Nobody. Until you're at 20,000 feet, like I was, on a packed plane, and I'm sitting right next to the starboard engine, and I hear this. And that little turbine quit spinning. Now, it took a minute before the pilot came on and said, ladies and gentlemen, we are experiencing a technical difficulty with the starboard engine. I got news for you. When you're in a two-engine plane at 20,000 feet, and when the engine stops, everybody already knew that before the pilot announced that. It was amazing how people responded. Pilot said, we're going to have to turn around and see if we can make See if we can make it. That's really encouraging. Back to the airport. Yes. I can tell you right now, there were people praying on that plane who probably never prayed in a long time. People started, started sharing the gospel. Nobody said, shut up. I don't want to hear about it. It was remarkable, that whole trip back. Everybody was open. Everybody was alert. And when that plane touched down on the ground, everybody was a Pentecostal. (laughs) Glory! Hallelujah! And the next time you got on a plane and they gave those safety instructions, man, you wanted to know where those exits were and everything else. And sometimes we need that refresher course. So here we go. Ready? Here's your instructions. Follow those things carefully. (laughs) You laugh, but you can't. How many can understand that? One. Thank you. So she's okay. The rest of us are going to hell. (laughs) Yeah. My wife and I were on a ferry from, and our family from Mombasa out to where the Digo and the the Ruma Language Project is in Kenya. And this ferry is designed to hold about 500 people. There was at least 2,000 of us on this ferry. Any safety instructions? I didn't understand a lick. And we were so packed, I, there was no place to go. You go down, if the crocs don't get you and the hippos don't get you, you get washed out to sea and the sharks eat you. Yay! How about this one? Do you any good? This one? By the way, this one is the most spoken language in the world. This is the second most spoken language in the world. This is the third most spoken language in the world. This one's all Greek to me. (laughs) Do you understand that one? It's life-changing because you can read it, can't you? All right. Let's look at the amazing book. I don't have a lot of time to go into this one, but I'm always amazed how people walk away from their faith, especially when they go off to college, they go off to university, or they get somebody at work and they start challenging them. I had so many of those kind of people in my life, and they would challenge, oh, yeah, this, that, and the other thing about the Bible. And I love history. So I did some research, and I found out, how many Plato, how many of you guys have heard of Plato? You know how many copies there are of Plato? There are 210 copies of Plato. Do you know when the closest one was written to when Plato lived? 1,200 years after he lived. Let's take my conversation today and somebody get to write it down 1,200 years from now. How accurate do you think it's going to be? Of course, we could trust it, right? Because you guys are going to memorize it. And you No. But nobody doubts Plato. The Quran was written down over 600 years after Muhammad lived. But you're not allowed to question it because it was supposed to be 
Inspired. Caesar's Gaelic War, there are 10 copies. They probably made 10 movies. Nobody doubts Caesar lived. The closest one was 1,000 years afterwards. Homer's Iliad, the gold standard, 1827. And within 500 years is the earliest manuscript that we have. Wow. But the New Testament alone has over 24,000 within 35 to 40 years. It's the most documented book on the planet. <coughs> it is amazing. You know, it was written over 1,500 years by over 40 authors. Now, are there things hard to understand in the Bible? Yes, there are. But that doesn't mean it's not inspired by God. We got our Bible from John Wycliffe, who translated the Bible in English for the first time in 1384. And these young men that you see up here on the screen, those are called Lollards. Those Bibles took them eight to, uh, took 12, 10 to 12 months to hand copy because they didn't have printing presses back then. They wrote them on sheepskin, vellum. When you graduated from college, you used to get your sheepskin to put on the wall. That's because it was made out of sheepskin. Took a flock of sheep to produce enough vellum to make a Bible. They're all handwritten, and those young guys had to go out and sell them for what it cost them to produce, and that was 40 British pounds back then. And in today's dollars, that's the equivalent of $40,000. Any of you guys going to buy a Bible? Take out a mortgage. So those guys would go out, and they'd sell them wherever they could, and they'd read them to the people, and the guys found out that Friar Tuck was lying to them. They didn't have to buy indulgences. Wycliffe had been trying to challenge the church of all the false doctrines they had and finally said, the people need to know what it says for themselves. So they translated it. And many of those young men, if they got caught with those Bibles and they didn't recant, which most of them never did, they tied them to a stake and they used their own Bible to light the wood on fire. And hundreds of young men died that you and I could have a Bible in our own language. Without the Bible, world evangelization would be not only impossible, but actually inconceivable. It is the Bible that lays, down, lays upon us the responsibility to evangelize the world, gives us a gospel to proclaim, tells us how to proclaim it, and promises us that it is God's power for salvation to every believer. This is one amazing, stupendous book. No other book on the planet can do that. People ask me from time to time, Gary, what book should I read to learn about the Bible? I said, the Bible. Yeah, 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 I understand. But, but is there an, a great little resource on that? I said, yeah, the Bible. Yeah, but I mean, is there somebody who's got some skull? I said, yeah, the Bible. I said, if I told you another book, which would you read first? You'd read the other book about the Bible instead of reading the Bible itself. I'm not opposed to those other books. I read them all the time. But your main source has to be the Bible. Wycliffe Bible translators, we're on the move. God is doing some incredible things in your lifetime, ladies and gentlemen. It is absolutely astounding. There's over 100 organizations now that are a part of this, this thing. There's a billion and a half people still don't have the word, uh, whole Bible. 145 million with nothing at all. 350 plus sign languages in the world. And I wish I had time to talk about sign language and translation because it is cutting edge stuff. We are producing something right now that's going to make the same impact on the deaf community as the printing press did on us who can read. But I need at least another computer specialist to help us on that. Pray that we can find that person. Okay, how many languages in the world? 7394 is the last count. There we go. Almost half have at least some scripture. 
1,596 are what we're encountering right now that we're working with. We've got 1,200 other partners, if you count churches and, and groups in that that we're doing translation with. And there are 1,255 remaining languages to be started, 1,255. That, that sounds like a lot of languages, but let me tell you something. When you thought there were 3,000, 1,255 is amazing, because let me show you this. This is the graph of how translation has happened in just recent years. In 1999, we were starting a new translation every 19 days. Can I get a hallelujah? hallelujah? That sounds impressive, doesn't it? That's 19 a year. That means it was going to take over 150 years to get the last one started. You going to be around in 150 years? My wife gives me vitamins. I will be. Can't promise you what I'll look like or smell like, but okay, every 19 days. And our, our then elected president says, God, what can we do different? In the last 22 years, God has given 23 years, God has given us some incredible technology, brought people into the work, just doing amazing things. And look at this. Let me just jump to 2020. In 2020, we were starting one every four days. In 2021, it was 2.3. What was going on during that time? COVID. And yet, God, it, in 2020, we were hoping to start 110. We started at 100, no, sorry, 2021. We were hoping to start 110. We started at 153. 2022, every 18 hours. Today, and they, my wife said, Gary, it's not officially published yet. So I can't put the numbers up there. But at the pace we've been going this year, every 13 hours. Ladies and gentlemen, let me, t- let, me, let, me, let me see if I can help you on this one. Every so often, there's a once-in-a-lifetime event. For me, it was when Kennedy was assassinated on my birthday. For my mama, she always talked about Pearl Harbor. My kids, it was 9-11. Those are once-in-a-lifetime events. Each one of you will have something that is a once-in-a-lifetime event. This, ladies and gentlemen, when we start the last translation, which we hope we could start possibly in the next two, three, five, six years maybe, if we can keep this pace up, this is a once in a lifetime. No, this is a once in an eternity. This is what the cross started here And when the last one is done over here, can I get a praise the Lord? Lord. Do you guys need more coffee? Let's try that again. Can I get a praise the Lord? Lord. Amen. Oh my goodness gracious me. You know what gets me out of bed in the morning? That's what helps get me out of bed in the morning when I see God doing these incredible things. So here's a tool. Let me give you something that is a wonderful tool for you guys. It's free. It's called Scripture Earth. Have you ever heard use Google Earth to try to find something? Great. This is Scripture Earth, so you can find Scripture. And what we do, in fact, I just met a lady this morning from Ethiopia, and I found her Bible, and I started playing, and she goes, oh. So let me, let me share you. This is a way that you can get. It's, it's a, a website that I have pegged on my phone, and I'm sitting at a food court, or I'm trying to sit at a food court at a Costco. And there's no place to sit. And this lady graciously says, oh, you can sit here. I said, thank you. 
by the way, I love your accent. Where are you from? She goes, I'm from Iran. So we type in Iran and bingo, all the languages that are available. Go ahead and scroll to the bottom of that just for fun. These are all the languages that are available in Iran that you can get access to the scriptures. So I said, so you speak Farsi, Persian, the national language. He said, I can, but that's not my language. I speak Assyrian. So I go to Assyria and you go to the button there and there's a Jesus film. And if you just go ahead and pick the Sermon on the Mount, give him a sample. Thank you. And I lost my phone for 20 minutes while she heard the gospel. Do you know Assyrian is the modern day term that we use for, sorry. Um, yeah, it's Jesus' mother tongue. You know, the, the Bible is written in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. It's Aramaic. Do you realize we did the translation in Aramaic? Jesus has only had the Bible in his language for about 10 years took a long time, didn't it? Anyway, so that was exciting. My goodness. Okay, let's keep going here. But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you could trust those who taught you. Guys, do you realize what a privilege it is to be in a place like this? Do you know what it's like to be in a biblical speaking church? When I lived in New Zealand, we had three churches in town to pick four churches in town. I didn't count the Mormon one or the Jehovah's Witness. Anyway, and the pastor used to preach from Reader's Digest, Time Magazine. He never preached from the Word of God. And he was one of the best churches in town. And one day he went to a pastor's retreat, and the only thing he was allowed to read was his Bible. He said he smuggled in a novel. And when he finished reading that, he had nothing else to read but the Bible. And by the end of the retreat, this guy who'd been in the ministry for 34 years got saved. Oh my goodness. You just heard the sermons after that. It was amazing. Okay. <clears throat> you have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. Victor grew up in Sweden. He had two brothers. They lived on a farm and their daddy, Peter, uh, became elected as a county commissioner. And with that that. Position came power and came prestige and came parties. And Peter began to drink at the parties and eventually he became an alcoholic. And eventually it started getting so bad that he started to lose, had to sell off part of the farm and sell off stuff. And Victor and his brothers realized there was not going to be any inheritance. So they decided they'd immigrate to America. But they had to do their two years of military duty before they could do that. And somebody gave Victor, now they went to church they went to the, you know, the liturgical church that they, everybody went to because it was a state church. And it, he went, they gave him a Swedish Bible before he went into the service. And on those long winter nights in northern Sweden, he started reading that Bible and he discovered that Jesus loved him and that Jesus died on the cross for him. And Victor got saved. Oh my goodness, did he get saved. He got known as Hallelujah Peterson. Because anytime he saw God doing something, he'd say hallelujah. When he finally got out of the service, he immigrated to America. 
and he ended up in Everett, Washington. He got a job in the mills up there. And to teach himself English, he got himself an English Bible. Back then, all they had was King James. So consequently, Victor sounded like this. Yea, verily, henceforth, yonder to vit, I saith unto thee. King James English with a Swedish accent. <laughs> he heard that his neighbor's daughter from Sweden had moved over to the States, Esther, at the age of 18. And somebody gave her a Swedish Bible when she left. And her only touchstone back to Sweden was that Bible. And she read it every night. And she got saved too. And they ended up getting married. They raised six kids up in the Everett area. And they had four, five boys and one son. And one of the sons was David. And David ended up working and going down to California and getting a job down there. And David had three kids too. And David and all of Victor's sons just loved the Lord and they were all active in their church and they loved to read the word. And every morning David would get up before he went off to work early in the morning and he would read the scriptures. And then he would pray out loud for the family and for the missionaries that they supported. And when the kids would come in for breakfast, they knew they had to be quiet until dad was finished praying. And every morning those kids heard their daddy praying for them. And one of those three kids that David had was Gary. My family tree was changed because somebody gave my grandfather a Bible. Praise God. Whew. All right. All scripture is inspired by God. How much scripture is inspired by God? How much? How much do you have to take away from all before you don't have all anymore? Just one thing. All scriptures inspired by God. I had a professor who is notorious for chewing up a lot of people's faith. I had friends of mine who had had his Christian friends of mine who took his class and pretty much they walked away from their faith when they got through. And this guy, Mr. Meacham, he was, he was the most brilliant professor and he knew it. And he'd just take delight and I didn't know any better. So I would challenge him and I said, well, you know, the Bible says this and the Bible says that and, and so forth and so on. And finally one day, just in exasperation, well, the Bible's full of mistakes. And many of my friends at that point just said, oh, okay, he knows what he's talking about. I was too stupid. So I said, oh, can you tell me where? You know, I don't think anybody ever asked him that. He goes, oh, um, well, um, uh, yeah, well, uh, uh <clears throat> Uh, yeah, um, uh, well, in, um, in, in the book of Psalms, in the book of Psalms. I said, oh, really? Can you tell me where in the book of Psalms? Uh, well, I, I don't have a Bible here to show you. Guess who had brought his Bible to class? <laughs> so I handed him my Bible. You know, he couldn't even find the book of Psalms. It's right in the middle. Now, are there things hard to understand in the Bible? Are there things that look confusing? I've taken a goal of reading the Bible through every year. I've read it over 40, I don't know how many times I've read it through, 45 times. And, you know, there are things that when I first read them, they were confusing. But, you know, as I read it through, I go, oh. How much scripture is inspired by God? Guys, you need to take it all. And if you don't understand it, ask the author the Holy Spirit to tell you what it means. And that's how we learn the word of God. And it's inspired by who? By who? 
It's, that's why I tell you to go back to this book. Other books are good. You can learn from this Swindolls and other people like that, but this is the one that's inspired by God. And it's useful to teach us what is true. How do we determine what's true in America today? Which way is the wind blowing? You know, if you went back, I, I went to my high school reunion. I've gone to a number of them. And I'll, if you had told my classmates, and I had, I grew up in the hippie era. I mean, we had the dope smoke and maggot infested. Some of my classmates, I mean, you know, if the fact that they have any brain cells left is amazing. But if you had told even those guys, back in the days we were graduating from high school, that certain things would be legal in America today and promoted in America, they would have even said, are you crazy? Nobody, nobody's stupid enough to... What's happened? How do we know if things are true in America? Well, if it's on the internet, we know it's true, right? If a politician tells us that, we know it's true. If a guy's... This is the one that drives me nuts in America. If it's got doctor, if the guy's got the word doctor before his name. Now, I'm not opposed to getting a doctorate degree. But a doctorate degree in, in frogs doesn't make you qualified to be a theologian and speak about the Bible. And, and people get out there and it, he's, he's really smart. He's got a doctorate degree. Well, I know a lot of people with doctorate degrees and they're idiots. I know a lot of people with doctorate degrees who make me look like an idiot. I'm not opposed to that. But how do we know what's true? It's the word of God. And it teaches us what is true and makes us realize what is wrong in our lives. It teaches what is true. Let me give you an idea. Sammy's a friend of mine. He's Egyptian. He was saying, Gary, hey, a friend of mine was locking up his church in Egypt, locking up his church at the end of a Sunday evening service. And as he's walking away, heading for home, three guys come up behind him. And they they grab him and they put a bag over his head. And his friend is going, what is going on? What would you do? Kumbaya, my Lord. No, you wouldn't. You'd be, go- you'd be terrified. They throw him in a car and they drive him to this place. He has no idea where he's going. They stop at a building and they open the doors. They go inside. And, and finding when he pulls off his hood, they pull off the hood. On one side of the auditorium are all these men wearing their robes and they got all their big beards. And on this side are all the women with their burkas and all the kids And he goes, I'm dead. I'm dead. And when he finally adjusts to the light, this guy comes up to him and he says, I am so sorry, my brother, that we had to kidnap you. But we've been reading this book and we've all become followers of Christ. And we read in this book about communion and we don't know how to do it. And every time we ask one of you guys, we scare you off. (laughs) So we figured we had to kidnap one of you. (laughs) Sammy said that was happening all over Egypt. Incredible. And it makes us realize what is wrong in our lives. How many of you guys looked in a mirror today? It's obvious a few of you didn't. <laughs> I'm not pointing you out, but everybody's sitting around you. No, no, just kidding. Why do you look in a mirror? Why do you look in a mirror? So you can correct yourself. You look in a mirror and you go, yo, man, I'm rocking that one today. Uh-oh. 
What's that? Ooh, that doesn't look good. Now, when you look in a mirror, if you see something wrong, is it the mirror's fault? No. no, it's not the mirror's fault. How do you know if something's wrong if you don't look in the mirror? You don't. My wife always makes me, when I'm on the road, she says, Gary, always stop and ask the lady of the house to make sure you match when you go out the door. I'm like my dad. God puts all the colors together in the flowers, and they all look good. Nobody says, oh, I'm sorry, pink flowers. You shouldn't be with those orange ones. So to me, I mean, if anyway, you ladies have other ideas, I, mean, I appreciate that. But we look in the mirror to see what needs to be corrected, don't we? And if you're not looking in the word of God, you're not getting your correction. And the word of God is our mirror. It shows us what's wrong in our lives. And it teaches us what's right in our lives and how to fix that thing in our lives. And then it says, it straightens us out and teaches us to do what is right. When I was a kid, my daddy used to say, bend over, son, and I'm going to straighten you out. And then my daddy would apply the hand of knowledge to the seat of learning. (laughs) The old time, you young guys have no idea what I'm talking about, but all you old guys do, don't you? Yeah. And God has to correct us sometimes to be able to do that. And the word of God is powerful for correcting us. Kim Thompson went to our church in Portland, Oregon. And the Fords, by the way, thank the Fords. It's their fault that I'm here. If you like the service, if you don't, they don't know who I am. <laughs> Kim, Kim went to church with us in Portland, Oregon. I remember one day she came in and she said, hey, look, can you play for, pray for a classmate of mine? Kim worked at Western Baptist Theological Seminary and, you know, they make lots of money there, not. And one of her, one of her colleagues had an old beat-up Honda and that was her transportation. And one day when they got off work, her friend went to find her Honda and she's, where did, where did, did I park it over here today? No, wait, maybe I parked it on another, str- did somebody move my car? Her car was stolen. I mean, it's not much, but I mean, it's your only transportation. And Kim says, so we all have to arrange to get her to work and get her home and all that other stuff. And she said the kicker was she had a brand new Bible with her name on it in the glove box. A few months later, Kim comes into church and she said, oh, guys, I got to tell you a story. This last week as we're sitting there at work in the office, a package comes in from my friend. Now, who would send a friend my friend, a package at her workplace. But her friend sat there and opened the package up and there was her Bible with a note that said, you don't know me, but I'm the one who stole your car. I am so sorry. I was doing it so I could do a drug deal and run it and then I thought, is there anything of value in this piece of junk? And I found this book in the glove box. And I said, wow, that looks really nice, leather bound. Man, I could get some money for that for drugs. And I thought, wow, I wonder what it is if it's such a nice book. And I started reading it. And I've given my life to Christ. Would you please find it in your heart to forgive me? And then she noticed there was a set of keys also wrapped in the package. And there was a little note that says, P.S., your car is parked over here. 
Kim said at the first break, they all go running out the door and they're running out to the street and they're looking, where's the car? What? Is this a joke? Hey, wait. The guy had fixed it up and painted it. And it was better than she had it before. It straightens us out and teaches us to do what is right. It is God's way of preparing who? Us. Before you go to battle, you prepare, don't you? Are you prepared for tomorrow morning? Are you prepared for what you're going to find this evening? Are you prepared for married life? Are you prepared for whatever, name the whatever it is. Are you prepared for it? It prepares who? It prepares us for what? In every way, fully, partially, partially equipped. Because we know God can't do that, right? No, fully equipped for every nice thing. Every easy thing. Every what? Good thing. Does that mean the hard things are not good? I say this because I've got seven grandkids and I know what's going on in the world today and I have seen persecution and I know what it's like to walk a street on a Sunday morning and you're with a group of people and you count the doors beyond all these boarded up these walled in houses and you knock quietly on the door and somebody checks to find out who you are and if it's safe to open that door and then you go inside and that's where the believers are gathering and you don't sing much louder than this. I've had friends who've lost loved ones. I've had friends who've gone through cancer. I've had friends who've gone through, you name it, you have too but we have a good, good father. We sang the song. Doesn't mean it's gonna be easy, but you need to be prepared. And of all the times, we need to be prepared. And that's why we gotta have the word of God. And these new groups and these new churches starting all over the place, how are they gonna grow if they don't have the word of God? You know what they love? They love second, first and second Peter because it talks about their world, about suffering. and That's what they live for. We get suffering. Oh my goodness, I'm going to give up on Jesus because he's making me suffer. And the rest of the world goes, well, what'd you expect? We question God. They, they don't. I've learned so much watching through Bible translation what these other people fully equipped for every what good thing God wants us to watch. God wants us to listen to. God wants us to what? To do. Sam and Nancy McBride worked among the Gimi people in Papua New Guinea. He's trying to find the different verbs. He got the word for hand and head and all those other things, but getting verbs is hard. And he was trying to find the verb to, he got the verb to see and he got the verb to smell and taste and speak and all. And he's trying to get the verb to do and he's trying to get the verb to hear. And he kept getting them confused. They kept, they kept until he finally figured out the verb to hear and the verb to do are exactly the same verb. Did you hear the message this morning? Yes, I did. No, you didn't. Why? Because you didn't do anything about it. A gamey person can't say they heard something unless they do something about it. My wife will say, Gary, did you hear what I said? Oh yeah, I heard. All you husbands understand that one, right? 
That means uh, you, you, you heard a vibration, <laughs> but you have no idea what they said. You can't say you heard it unless you do it. James talks about that, James chapter one. Every good thing God wants us to do. We were working in Nepal. I can tell you this story now, and you'll know why when I finish. We were working in Nepal. We'd been there for 10 years, 10 years. At the time we were there, it was considered a Hindu kingdom. The government has changed a lot since. But at the time it was a Hindu kingdom, the king was considered a god. And it was against the, the law to change your religion. It was against the law to become a Christian. And if you did, you got a one-year prison sentence. Think about that. How many people would come to Christ if they knew, if they gave their life to Christ, they could face a one-year prison sentence? I mean, that's not exactly what you call easy evangelism. But if you cause somebody to become a Christian, if you were that jerk who shared and they came to Christ, you got a six-year prison sentence. Wycliffe had been working there 10 years, learning languages, developing alphabets, being able to write them down. I could tell you miracles of what God did and how we, just amazing stuff that was going on. But we weren't seeing anybody come to Christ. Very discouraging. Sometimes you have missionaries that you've been praying for and you've been supporting and you haven't heard any results. Phil and Mary Bear worked among the Lacandone Indians for 20 years and had nothing to show for it. But today, I defy you to find any group of people in Mexico that has a higher percentage of Christians among them. It took them 40 years to get that translation done, and it is one of the most dynamic churches you'll ever sit in. But we're sitting there for 10 years. When you finally get the language down enough and you get the alphabet and you start learning the words, it takes time to get those words right. You've got to find a word for all those words like the verbs and everything else, but how do you find a verb for believe? How do you find a word for God? How do you find a word for hope? By the way, do you know that that's one of the most difficult words to find in another language, the word hope? That is the most unique word to Christianity. You will not find that in any other religion on the planet because the hope that we have in the Bible is a sure thing. It is a definite thing. Set apart. Now in English, we can say, I hope this is gonna happen, but we can also say, I have a hope that is a sure thing that we have confidence in that we know is gonna happen. It's definite. And the hope in the Bible is a definite thing. If, why do we have that? Because we know we didn't save ourselves. You sang the songs. It was Christ who died for us. It was he that saved us and not we ourselves. If you're trying to work your way to heaven, you never know for sure if you're gonna get there, do you? That's why so many languages don't even have the word hope. So it takes a phrase sometimes to be able to translate that. It's just powerful, and I don't have time for that one. So anyway, so we're working on this thing. And by the time we get there 10 years in, you're spending about six hours on a verse. That means in the book of Colossians, you've spent about 600 hours. And by the time you're done, you've, most of the time, they've got that stuff memorized, all the passages that you're working on. And then people started getting saved. It was exciting. And spooky. Now, the government wasn't going to put a bunch of expats because they gave us permission to work in the country because they wanted their indigenous people to have a way to communicate and give them health and all that other stuff, information. And so we taught, my wife's dad taught at the university in electronics as part of our agreement, and we flew in our planes and all this other stuff. 
So they said, okay, you got three months and you're out of here. Three months. My mother-in-law, who was a nurse and a, a, t- a teacher, she ran the printing press so we could get off as much scripture as possible. That old printing press, she said it broke down all the time. For that three months, it never broke once. It just ran like a clock. And we were pumping out the scriptures. And finally, after that time, we had to leave. And we're going, God, what are you doing? But by this time, people had started to come to Christ. They had enough scriptures in their heads and in their hands. As they started to share the gospel, this one guy out in his village started sharing the gospel. He wanted to share it with his family. He was so excited about the changes. But his family said, hey, 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 you guys, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. But uh, uncle, don't, don't come over here because you don't want to be associated because you don't want to go to jail. But they kept seeing the changes and people in the village kept seeing the changes and slowly won. By one, by one, and family by family, people started coming to Christ. When the authorities found out about it, they started doing research, and they found out who it was, and they grabbed this guy, and they threw him in jail. They threw him in prison. Now, when they throw you in prison over there, they're not obligated to feed you. They're not obligated to take care of you at all. They just throw you in there, and your family's got to find out where you are, because they're the ones that have to get the food to you, and they got to get past the guard to get it to you. And when they threw him into the prison cell... He lands on top of the decomposing body of one of the prisoners who had died before him. And the smell was so bad, he began to retch until he couldn't do it anymore. And as he sat down on that prison and he leans up against the wall and his eyes adjust to the darkness, there's only a little window up here. It's just a hole with bars in there so they can't climb out and the smoke from when the fire's in the room that the prisoners use to cook their food. He opens his eyes and he looks around and he notices there's other prisoners in that cell. He said, Lord, what are you doing? And the Lord says, there's your audience. And one by one as he shared the Apostle Paul that got locked up with the Timothys, these guys started coming to Christ and they were having Bible college right there in the cell. And when the authorities realized what was going on, they said, this is crazy. So they grabbed him and they put him in another cell. And one by one, people in that cell started coming to Christ. So they put him in another one. They put him in with the tough dudes. Not so tough when you come to Christ. And finally they said, this is crazy. People know where he is, so they put him in another prison. And one by one, people started coming to Christ. And here's the kicker. The guards started seeing the changes. Now think about this, guys. You're a guard. You get to go home at night. You know what's on the other side of that cell. But the people in that cell are more free than you are. And one by one, guards started giving their lives to Christ. Can I get an amen? Amen. So they said, that's it. They sent them to a place where it's the death sentence. They put you in a cell They strap you down on this slab. 
They shackle your feet, they shackle your hands, and you're laying on the bones of the guy who died there before you. That's it. Once that door is closed, it doesn't open again until another prisoner goes in there to die. I can't explain the next part, but I believe it's true. While he was in there, what would you do? I know what you and I would do. I'd be going, God, what's the deal here, man? How dare you do this to me? No. He starts praising the Lord, and the Lord, the Lord visits him in the cell. If the Lord visited you, what would you do? You and I would analyze him. He starts worshiping. He's praying, Lord, oh, man, my, my Lord, my Savior. And the guards are going, what's going on in here? Jesus is in here. How did he get in here? They're hearing all this stuff going on and they, they get the keys and they open the door and they don't see, well, they don't see Jesus, but they see it in him. And they said, you know, we can't kill him. And the reason why I can tell you this story is because they kicked him out of the country. God is in the business of changing hearts and lives today. I like to wrap this up with a song. It's a deep theological song. It's complicated, it's complex, it's got incredible, deep, deep, deep meaning. And it may be hard, but if you guys know it, I want you to sing it. It sums up everything I've said today. If you know it, you can sing it with me. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Sing it. Yes, Jesus loves me. Why? The Bible tells me so.